Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, as Timothy just said, my name is Matt, and I'm the REF campus minister at Duke. And as he said, I would love to talk with you uh, more about that. If that's something you know nothing about, would love for, to share with you what that means. Uh, if it's something you know something about, would love to uh, share more about it as well. Also, we'd just love to get to know you. Uh, my family, as Timothy said, has been part of this church for a few years now. So we just love the opportunity to get to know you more. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. I get to continue in the series that we are going through here at Christ Central on one another. And we're going to turn to the letter of James uh, in chapter 5 to talk about what might be for us a little bit of a counterintuitive one another, or maybe at least not natural, but to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And we're going to see what it is that James has to teach us through that. So James chapter 5. Verses 13 through 16, so would you follow along uh, as we read that? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we prepare to hear from it? Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful that you have brought us here. Uh, we recognize that we are coming from different places. There may be some of us who are excited to be here, ready to hear and receive a word from you. Uh, there are some who are skeptical that you speak and have anything to say at all to our hearts and our lives. Father, wherever we are, uh, I would ask that you would speak. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what you do, which is to take imperfect and incomplete words of someone like me and make them effective uh, for your people. And God, I pray that as a result of what we hear in your word this morning, that we would be different as we walk out of here than we were when we came in. Uh, Lord, we need you to do this, and we pray that you would. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me warn you that a non-science person is about to talk about science for a second. Uh, I promise it won't be too bad, but be gracious for me. Uh, I heard a story recently about a student that was giving a report on something called the law of the pendulum. And here's where science comes into play. And what the student uh, is saying in the law of the pendulum is that when you release a pendulum from a certain point, it is impossible for that pendulum to return to a point higher than the point from where it was released. There's gravity, there's friction that is going on. And so he explains for about 20 minutes in this report the physics and the science behind it. And he demonstrates by making a makeshift pendulum. He ties a three-foot piece of string to a child's toy top at the other end end and attaches it to a whiteboard with a thumbtack. And so he pulls it to one side and he marks the starting point or the release point and then lets it go. And every time it comes back, he notes that it goes just a little bit lower than the time before until it comes to a rest in the middle. And so he turns and asks everybody, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And every hand goes up, including the professors. And then he reveals that he's actually made another pendulum but this time, not with a piece of string, but with 500-pound parachute cords with 250 pounds of metal attached to the bottom of it, hanging from the steel beams at the top of the classroom. And then he asked the professor to climb up on a desk and sit in the chair with his back to the wall, and he pulls the pendulum to right in front of the professor's nose. 
And he reminds the professor of the law of the pendulum. It's impossible for this to return to a point higher than the release point. And says, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? The professor with beads of sweat on his forehead and kind of weakly says, yes, I believe in the law of the pendulum. So the student lets it go. And it goes whirring down the other side. And as it turns and comes back, the professor dives off the table to get out of the way. And so the student turned to the class and said, does the professor believe in the law of the pendulum? And they all said no. The point being this is that oftentimes our actions or the way we live our lives are a better indicator of what we believe than what we say we believe. James makes this point elsewhere in his letter when he talks about the relationship between faith in Jesus and our good works as people. And he says, faith without works is dead. Now, we've already affirmed in this service, and it's all over Scripture, that our salvation is not some combination of what Jesus does and what we bring to the table. We are wholly dependent upon grace alone through faith alone in what Jesus has done for us. So James is not saying that our faith requires us to do our part in order to be saved. But what he is saying in his letter is that how we live our lives will be an indicator of whether or not we actually have faith in this Jesus that we claim. Because if you are a Christian, what you are saying is that what is true in the Bible is as certain as the law of the pendulum. And what Jesus says for us to do is right and true and good for our lives. And perhaps there's no better indicator of whether or not we have faith in Jesus than our prayer life. James comes to chapter 5 and he talks about prayer. And he talks about it in the context of some very difficult things going on in the lives of the people to whom he is writing. And what James is saying is that prayer isn't just an individual thing. It's not just an us and God as individuals, but prayer actually has a communal or a corporate or a one another element to it. And so I want to talk about prayer in this series on one another. And I want to make three points about it, and I'm going to alliterate them so hopefully they're more memorable to you. But I want to talk about the faith of prayer. I want to talk about the function of prayer, what it does. And finally, I want to talk about the foundation of our prayer. So the faith of prayer, the function of prayer, and the foundation of prayer. But let me start by asking you this question. How's your prayer life? Do you struggle at all with prayer? Now, let's be honest. Sometimes prayer can kind of seem like a throwaway thing, right? Or maybe at worst, in our minds, it can seem like a waste of time. Or at best, something you do when you're trying to be spiritually extra. Oftentimes, it feels as if it's better for us to do something more productive and more tangible in our spiritual lives. After all, we're talking to a God that we can't see, and rarely, if ever, do we receive any kind of response, at least immediately, to our prayers. And so I think we can be compelled to believe we should do something more tangible, more visible. And if I'm honest, I feel this temptation all the time in my campus ministry life at Duke. Duke is a place that thrives on productivity. Time is money, and you're often only as good as the results you can produce. And so I can feel like I need to justify my existence on campus through my productivity, how many students I can meet with and provide good counsel to, the effectiveness or persuasiveness of my Bible studies or my sermons in a pluralistic and skeptical culture, simply how many people come to a meeting in the first place. But in the midst of this call for productivity from everywhere around me, I often feel the Holy Spirit nudging me to spend more time praying 
to actually bring my students and their real struggles and concerns emotionally, relationally, spiritually before God and ask him to do something about it. But if I'm honest, I resist that because prayer just doesn't seem productive. Oftentimes, it seems like a small and insignificant activity in the face of the very significant and real trials and tribulations of their lives and of my life. And yet, it is exactly in that context, the real challenges of life, that James is talking so much here about prayer. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Suffering is just a word that means feeling the effects of evil. And this could be evil of any kind. It could be injustice or oppression or racism or classism or poverty or slander or people who are making fun of each other for no good reason or pushing other people down to build themselves up. All things that James talks about happening in his letter, even in the church. He talks about sickness. And if you see this, this, this passage here about somebody who is sick, you almost get the impression that they are so sick so beat down by their illness that they can't even get out of bed to get to church themselves. The best they can do is call for the elders to come to them. And then he talks about sin. Sin, this thing that the Bible says are violations of God's commandments that rightfully deserve separation from him and his judgment and his wrath and his righteous anger. These are the harsh realities of life in a painful and broken world. Suffering and sickness, and sin. And what does James tell his readers to do in the face of these circumstances? Pray. Let the sufferer pray. Let the one who is so sick they can't even pray themselves call for help and ask people to pray for them. The ones who have sin in their lives, let them confess that sin to one another and pray for one another. And just for good measure, if anyone's cheerful, they better pray too. Prayers of praise and gratitude for the goodness that God is doing in their lives. In all circumstances, pray. What's the big deal about prayer? Why is prayer so important? Well, prayer is a fundamental demonstration of a faith in a God that can do something when we pray to him. James talks in verse 15 about the prayer of faith. There is faith connected to prayer. To illustrate that, maybe it's more helpful to talk about what our actions convey we believe to be true if we don't regularly pray. If we are not praying in the midst of suffering, what our actions say we believe, regardless of what we would say, is that we need to handle suffering on our own. That we don't need God's help. Or that God's help doesn't matter. He's not big enough or doesn't care enough about our suffering to do anything about it. If we are not giving gratitude to God in prayer for the good things in our lives, what we are saying in that moment is that we are responsible fully for the good things that come to us. Or that we're entitled to good things. No need to give God any special props because we're simply supposed to get good things in our lives. If we can't pray or ask other people to pray for us when we are sick, what we are saying in that moment is that God can't do anything about our sickness. Or in not asking other people to help, that we don't deserve other people's help. Or we don't need their help. Again, that we can do it 
on our own. If we are not regularly confessing our sins to God and one another, what our actions functionally say we believe is that we need to hide the messiest parts of our lives, that we need to perform for other people, that we need to keep our sins hidden. Perhaps because we believe that God's compassion and his forgiveness have limits. Or maybe because we believe that we don't really have anything we need to confess in the first place. Or that sin really isn't that big of a deal. If we are not regularly praying for the one another's in this church that sit around us and among us, what we are saying by those actions is that their problems are not our problems. What we're saying is that we're not more intimately connected to them as family in the church than we are to our own flesh and blood. Or we're saying that we can fix their problems, not God. If we are not regularly praying in all circumstances, what our actions say we believe is that prayer doesn't work. And if prayer doesn't work, what we're really saying is that God doesn't work. And God does nothing to say about the real joys and sorrows of our lives. The problem with those functional beliefs is that they fly completely in the face of everything the Bible reveals to be true about God and us. Those functional beliefs associated with not praying are completely contrary to everything about biblical Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that our actions are not important. I'm not saying that we don't have a part to play. I'm not saying that we should not take tangible steps to alleviate suffering that we see in our lives and the lives of those around us. I'm not saying that we shouldn't actively fight against oppression and injustice in this world. I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek medical attention or medicine when we're sick. But if we are not covering those actions in prayer... What we are saying is we are trusting in our own actions or in the actions of others more than the God of Scripture. Faith is involved in prayer because prayer is a way that we demonstrate with our actions and with our words, with our hearts and with our mouths that our ultimate hope and trust in this world is in the God who made us and in the God who rescues us. There is faith connected to prayer. But there's also a connection between the faith of prayer and the function of prayer. Because the reality is we're not going to pray if we don't think that prayer does anything. We're not going to pray if we don't think that prayer works. But here in verse 16, what James is saying is that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There is a function to prayer. It accomplishes something. And verse 16 tells us what it is. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. In order that you may be healed, that is the function of prayer. Now, if you're like me, you can tend to read the yous of the Bible as individual. So you should pray as an individual so that you, as an individual, might receive blessing and healing from God. But the danger of that is that can so easily get twisted, and it has, to something like this. If you just pray enough... If you just have enough faith, if you just do enough good things, then God will bless you with exactly what you want. We hear that kind of teaching, and it sounds great to our ears until it doesn't work. Until we pray and God doesn't answer that prayer. Or we do good things and God doesn't fulfill his end of the bargain, right? But that's not what James is saying. The you in you may be healed is not singular, 
It's plural. That's why the one another's are embedded in this verse. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that the church may be healed. The context of this letter, James tells us, is he's writing to people that are fighting with each other. They're bickering, they're quarreling, they're using their words against each other. It says that they have bitter jealousy in their hearts and selfish ambition. These people love money, they love comfort, they love power, they love prestige, they love influence more than they love each other. I wish I could say that this letter was not still relevant to the church today. And what's more is that people are going through suffering. And we know from experience that suffering, instead of drawing people together sometimes, can actually push people farther apart, right? There have been crazy divides over how we deal with and respond to COVID, right? People of the same faith professing the same Lord responding so differently and judging one another about it. We see crazy divides exist over whether there really is systemic racism and injustice in a world that so clearly has so much injustice in it, and yet people of the same faith and the same Lord aren't quarreling, fighting, cursing one another over this. James talks about the church using their words for judgment and cursing and division. And he's right to write this to people because we, if we're honest, are master judges of other people. We judge the way people dress. We judge the way they spend their money. We judge where they went to school or where they send their kids to school, how their kids behave. We judge how they spend their money. We judge how they vote. We judge all sorts of things about each other, even things that are outside of one another's control. We are master judges. Church leaders criticize their congregations. Congregations criticize their church leaders. We spread gossip. We, we love drama. The tongue is a restless evil, as James says in chapter 3. And so when he arrives at chapter 5, here is what he's saying. He's saying, stop using your tongues to curse and judge. Use your tongues to pray for one another. Instead of cursing, pray for one another. Instead of complaining, praise God for the good things that he is doing. Instead of judging one another, confess that you have things that you could rightfully be judged for, things that Jesus needed to come and die for. There's a healing element as we begin to pray for one another. I remember I was a uh, recent college graduate and I was complaining to a pastor friend of mine about somebody in our church, not this church, who particularly bothered me. And he gave me a piece of advice that I hated at the time, but it was really good advice. He said, instead of complaining about that person, what if you committed to regularly praying for them? And so I tried it. And what I found is it's really hard to maintain a posture of dislike for somebody that you regularly pray for. As God brings to mind that person's own needs and struggles and gifts, it's hard to maintain a posture of dislike when you realize that you bring the same mix of mess and gifts to the table. So if you're struggling with somebody, a family member, a friend, a church member, I would encourage you to pray for them. If you're struggling with things that your church leaders are doing, before you criticize them, I would encourage you to pray. And as you go to them, I would encourage you to go in a disposition that has been covered by time praying for them. Church leaders, would we be willing to have that same prayer and disposition to people in our church that we struggle with? Praying for one another can have a healing effect 
in the midst of division. Confession, too, can have a healing effect. Confess your sins to one another because here's what confession does. Confession is a way for us to acknowledge that we all have things for which Jesus very easily and rightly could have judged and cursed us. But instead of doing that, he took the curse and the judgment upon himself. Confession is a way for us to activate this, rec- this reality that we all need Jesus and to invite one another to remember that to be true. Confession is an invitation to each other that we don't need to pretend in this place. We don't need to put on a perfectly crafted image. We don't need to hide from each other. Confession is a way that we invite one another into the healing that comes when we begin to be brutally honest before God and each other just how messed up we are and just how much God meets that confession with full and total forgiveness and acceptance. Is that the way we're treating each other? Church leaders, would you be willing to lead the way in acknowledging your need for Jesus? being honest about your mistakes and your failures, telling the church that what you need most is not a leader in the church, but one who is far greater and better and more just and right than any human being other than Jesus could be. And I'm convinced, too, that confession not only has a healing potential in the church, but it also is lovingly missional to the people out in the world. Because regularly confessing our sins to one another is a way to say to the world, come be a part of a community where you don't need to maintain a perfectly crafted image. Come be part of a family where your value is not based on what you can produce. Come experience through us the love of a Savior that knows every piece of junk about you and yet willingly entered into that junk so that he could heal you and forgive you by giving his life for you. Confession is a missional way to say, you don't need us, but you need the one who we have faith in. And what we begin to see in this passage is that what we need in our prayer lives, what we need to have faith in prayer, is we need to have a foundation on which we set our prayer. A foundation that we can trust will make our prayers effective. And it is that Savior who we can point one another to, who is the foundation of our prayer. Do you struggle to pray? It's okay to be honest about that. Because we don't get better at praying by looking at ourselves. We don't even get better at praying by looking at the people we ask to pray for us that we think are good at it. Prayer is not effective because of the person praying. It is effective because of the one to whom we are praying. Look at verse 14. It's this kind of interesting point where this person who is desperately sick calls for the elders, the God-appointed leaders of the church, to come and anoint that person with oil. Just as an aside, this is likely not medicinal, Certainly not a surefire way to receive healing in this life. Otherwise, we should line the elders up here with super soakers filled with oil and just make it rain in here. No, this is a way to outwardly consecrate people who are sick, outwardly demonstrate that this person is in need of divine healing, and to practice that with actions. 
It's a way for a person who may even be so sick that they don't have the strength or the faith in that moment to pray for themselves to ask somebody to come and pray for them. But what I want you to notice in that verse is that this anointing and this prayer happens in the name of the Lord. In biblical categories, a name isn't just what you call someone. It carries everything about that person with it. The character, the actions, the ability, what they have said and what they have done and what they promise they will do. And we are invited to pray our prayers in the name of the Lord. And as we do that, verse 16 tells us that a righteous person's prayer is powerful as it works. But I want you to know this, that in biblical categories, again, a righteous person other than Jesus is not a person who doesn't struggle. It's not a person who doesn't mess up. It's not a person who has it all together. A righteous person is somebody who has set their whole lives in faith upon the only righteous person who who has ever lived. A righteous person in biblical categories is one who has said, I am not righteous, And I need somebody to live a perfect life that I could never live, die a death that I could I deserve, and rise again to new life, never to die again. And what we believe when we trust in that righteous person, Jesus, is that he takes all of his righteousness and he gives it to us as if it's ours. And he takes all of our junk and we give it to him as as if it is his. And so now before him, we have this status of righteousness that can never be taken away if we have faith in him. And what's more is there's a promise attached to as we begin to trust God more and more by actually doing what he says, he will actually have our lives reflect more and more that righteous status that he has given us. A righteous person is one who has set their whole lives on the name and power of Jesus, including when they pray. The foundation of all prayer in any circumstances is Jesus. The one who entered into suffering so that he could do something about suffering. The one who alleviates suffering in this world. And so when we pray, we have this hope that he really is able to do more than we ask or imagine in the suffering and sickness that we face. But we know that he doesn't always grant that prayer for suffering and relief in this life. But we have hope in him that he will grant it in the resurrected life to come. And so we pray in hope and anticipation of a day where there is no more suffering, no more sickness, no more sin that we have to deal with. The foundation of confession to God and one another is one who would take our sins upon himself on the cross. One who would say, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The foundation of being honest about our need is recognizing that when that happens, we have a God that meets our need because of the cross with total and full forgiveness. The foundation of prayer in any and all circumstances is Jesus, who himself prays for us, and who gives us his very spirit to help us when we struggle to pray. So here's the takeaway. Pray. If you're suffering, pray. If you struggle to pray, be honest about it, but try to build habits of prayer. Read books on prayer. Ask people to help you. When your faith is so weak that you can't pray yourself, ask somebody else to pray for you. Start getting brutally honest before God and one another. You don't have to pretend for God. 
Why would we pretend for one another? Pray for those you struggle with, especially. Pray for your church and its leaders. The degree to which we believe that there really is a God who answers our prayers, the degree to which we believe that our prayers actually work to bring healing and restoration will be the degree to which our lives begin to reflect that by getting on our knees more and more and praying. But the only way we will do that, again, is not by fixing our eyes on ourselves, but by fixing our eyes on the foundation of our prayers, who came to live and die for us, to deal with suffering, to deal with sin, to deal with sickness for all time. And so we are invited to live our whole lives in the name and power of this foundation of prayer. And let us not just see if he'll do what he says he'll do. Bring restoration and healing to a divided church and to a divided world. Bring total and full forgiveness to people who so desperately need it. Bring relief and healing from sickness and suffering in this life and with certainty in the resurrected life to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these words and sink them more deeply into our hearts and our souls. I pray that you would fix our eyes on the firm foundation of our prayers, the one who would pray for us and would enter into all of our suffering and sickness and death, take it upon himself and give us resurrection hope. Father, I pray that we would be a people that can be brutally honest about our need for Jesus so that we don't judge and criticize and condemn one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing as we pray for each other and confess to one another. Lord, our prayers are not effective because of us. They're effective because of you. And I pray that you would make them such. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.